morning, Hagerstown Church. It's uh, a privilege for me to be with you again this morning. Uh, last week, we opened up our time together with a quick announcement regarding the reopening plan for Hagerstown Church. And uh, specifically, we talked about entering into step two. Now, step two would, would basically mean business as usual, as it has been for the past uh, few months. But in addition, now we're going to be encouraging anyone that's in a life, I'm sorry, in a D group to begin to meet. And so I know that many of you had the opportunity to, to do that even this week. Um, I know that I was able to do that. It was a privilege to meet with some of the guys in my D group and to be able to pray together, to look at the word together and to encourage one another through the word. Um, and so anyway, that was, that was a great time. I know many of you had the opportunity to do that. Now this week, I want to announce a similar announcement. Uh, in addition to D groups being uh, encouraged to meet in person, now we'd like to begin encouraging life groups, if you feel comfortable, to meet together. And so this is an exciting time. We're entering into step three of Hagerstown Church's reopening plan. Again, I want to encourage you, you can visit that, um, the website at hagerstownchurch.org. There's a detailed explanation of this document and, and, and our plan to reopen. And again, we'll go ahead and drop it in the, in the notes below. And so look for that. Please stay with us during the service, uh, during, during our sermon, but check it out after the service. Again, this is an exciting time for us. Every day we draw closer to the day that we'll be able to meet in person. So I know, I know that you anticipate this. I anticipate it as well. That day is getting closer. And so be in prayer uh, for the body as we prepare to meet again together, as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we hear the word preached, prayed, and sung. Uh, it's going to be a, a great time. And also just be, uh, be thinking about who you can bring with you. I know this has been for me, this has been a unique time for me to meet uh, neighbors and friends around, um, even in different, in different ways. But people are longing for community. People are longing for hope. And we as the people of God have that and more. And so who could you bring with you as we do prepare to meet? Um, we don't have the date yet. We, we're not ready to, to throw that out there, but it is coming. And so be considering, who can you bring with you? Who can you uh, begin to invite to, to experience the hope of the gospel in the community of the saints? Um, that day is drawing closer. Before we jump into our text this morning, which is in Mark chapter 3, I just want to say this. It's a difficult time to be in leadership, both in uh, the secular world and then also um, in, the, in the church. And while that is true... And nine times out of ten, I want to just say this, on behalf of Pastor Tim and myself, it really has been a privilege for us to pastor Hagerstown Church in this time. This has been uh, a, a time, yes, difficult, but at the same time, we see and have sensed that our church has been uh, in, an encouragement to their pastors, that they've put their faith and trust um, in our leadership, and we appreciate that. So we know it's difficult, there's so many uh, rules and questions, and we don't know what narrative to believe. But you guys have been faithful. You've been you've been patient with us, and uh, and we as your pastors are truly grateful. And so keep us in your prayers, and uh, and we we look forward to, to to rolling out some more information. Of course, as it's received to us, we'll receive it or we'll uh, send it out to you as well. And so uh, with that, let's jump into our text this morning. And so Mark chapter three. Uh, last week we looked at verses one through six, uh, in addition to part of chapter two. But this week in chapter 3, we'll look at verses 7 on down to verse 12. And so, let me just say this. Remember, as we walk through the Bible, none of these passages are without context. And so we only, while we only look at a, a few verses or a, maybe a paragraph um, at a time, they, they're not without the context of what we looked at the week before and the, and the weeks before even, and the weeks that will come. And so keep that in mind. Um, and I'll, I'll reference some of that this morning, but let's, let's read together Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. 
This is what the Bible says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire that you would bless this word read read. We, we, we pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would use it to conform us into the image of your Son. Father, those that need to be encouraged this morning, as a result of us looking at, your, at this text this morning, would your Spirit not lift us up? Father, those who need to be corrected and humbled, would you do that as well through your Word this morning? God, we are people in need, and we believe that your Word is our bread, that your Word is our meat, our daily bread, and so we come to it now. We ask that you meet our needs through your Word, and we ask it in the name of Jesus boldly and confidently. Amen. So, as I said a moment ago, this passage has a greater context. It serves really as a summary of what has been happening over the last few weeks, really since the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so, as, the, as, it, as it brings to a close the previous five stories or so, it transitions us back into the main point of Mark's Gospel. And that main point is that we see that Jesus is the Son of God, as he states clearly in Mark 1, verse 1. So the reach and scope of Jesus' ministry is it's beginning to, to hit fever pitch. It's beginning to, to come to critical mass. Jesus is becoming more and more popular. And to say that really is to say the least, right? It, it's, it's far more than that. That's an understatement. The results were beginning to come in. His, his miracles were conf confirming his identity. And his, they were, his confirmation of his identity really was in beginning to initiate his rejection. We looked at that in verse 6 of chapter 3. And at this point, we're seeing several varying responses to Jesus' message. Many want to kill Jesus. Many want to have him heal them and meet their physical needs. And yet, many, still yet, we believe and hope, are repenting and believing the good news. And so, Mark starts off his gospel, his book, by declaring that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And that's a huge claim. Don't forget that. That's partly uh, what we looked at last week, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Because he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming to be deity. And this is the problem. The fact that Jesus is claiming to be God. Then as Mark tells Jesus' story, he outlines his case uh, with various points, all pointing back and confirming, affirming this claim that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Right? He has authority over disease. He has authority over nature. He has authority over demons, over religion, uh, over nature, over the nations, even over individual people. He's flexing his power. He's demonstrating his authority. And all of these are pointing and confirming what, uh, pointing to and confirming what Mark is desiring to tell us. Just as John was, and just as Jesus himself is, what what are they saying? That Jesus is the Son of God. But this passage almost serves as, serves as a bit of a midterm, if you will, as a, as a progress report. 
Mark begins by saying, of course, he's the son of God. But then he begins to make the case by telling us individual stories and, 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 and sewing them together so that we'll see that he indeed is the son of God. And if Jesus was the son of God, what would we expect to see as a result of his coming, as a result of his public ministry? What would we expect to see? Well, here's what we would expect to see, exactly what has happened. You see, here's the outline of our text this morning. Many people are present. Many people are present. Another uh, point in the outline is that many places are represented. And so we're not just seeing great crowds, but we're seeing people from all over the place. And finally, we see that many pressures are realized. And again, this is what we would expect to see. We would expect to see great crowds. We would expect to see people from all over the place gathering and, and, and following after Jesus. And we would also expect to see opposition. And so all three of these things in this midterm, if you will, are proving and pointing to and confirming for us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so things are shaping up nicely for Jesus. Everything is going exactly according to his plan. And first we'll look at the fact Many people are present. And so look at verse 7. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. So there he is. He's in the cities. He's going from town to town. He's preaching. He's spending time in the synagogues. But now, uh, for several reasons, and we'll look at a few of them in just a moment, but for several reasons, he leaves these cities, and he goes out down by the sea. Now, practically speaking, down by the sea as the as the topography and the geography begins to change uh, it begins to to deep to, to the elevation begins to change suddenly and and there's a steep uh, a decline as he goes down toward sea level literally and what that begins to create then is a, a bit of an amphitheater it begins to create some seating for the people so that they can these great crowds can now be accommodated by uh, the new um, area, the new venue, if you will. And so Jesus goes out to the sea, but there's several other reasons we'll look at again. We'll look at those in more in depth. But as he goes out to the sea, this great crowd follows him. So to say that Jesus had become a, a popular a teacher or, or, or a leader would be an extreme understatement. He was far more than just popular, that, far more than just being liked and admired. We remember that when the, the scriptures tell us that Faithful preaching of the gospel will often and, and almost always lead to hostility and unpopularity in most. But not least on account of the of fact that it's, it demands and pushes out a proclamation of judgment upon people. So this is often why this message of the gospel, this good news, is rejected. Because people get stuck on that message of judgment, that portion of judgment. But for now, Jesus and his disciples, they're still gaining attention. They're still liked and admired. Now, we know what's coming, but for now, this is where they're at. We know that many will scatter. Many will leave Jesus. The crowds will get larger, and then they'll get smaller. And then they'll get larger, and then they'll get smaller depending on what they hear for the day, whatever message it is, whether it tickles their ears or whether they enjoy it or whether they find disgust or, or discomfort in it. Either way, here in these large crowds, we see a confirmation that Jesus was a big deal, that his message was powerful. And so finally, we who, who know who Jesus is, we, we see, uh, as it were, uh, looking backwards through, through with 2020 vision throughout history, what do we see? We see finally people are recognizing Jesus for who he is. It's so odd to us. There 
on that first Christmas as Jesus uh, enters into the, the physical realm and he's held by his mother, wrapped up by his earthly father, that there's not many people gathered there. No, it seems as though they're ultimately alone, just him and his family, and it seems odd. Nobody was waiting. Nobody was ex excited to see him enter into the world. And only a few shepherds were notified and, and then came and gathered there at Jesus at his bedside. It seems odd to us that the Son of God would, would be born in a, a stable and only a few unshaven, raggedy shepherds would be there. And finally, we're beginning to see the crowds recognize who Jesus is. See, that night when Jesus was born, it wasn't time to reveal to the masses, but now it was. It was coming to that place. It was coming to that end. Information of Jesus was coming out, and finally, a response a little more fitting for God with us. Emmanuel was being realized. So what does this tell us about Jesus, these great crowds following him? Well, they don't serve uh, to finally demonstrate to us that he is the, the Messiah. Many people have had crowds following him, but, but, but it does, in fact, point this large crowd, it does point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that his message is for all people. That his message is a powerful message and that it attracts and that it meets needs. So we're seeing this, that Jesus can meet every need of every person. That Jesus can meet every need of every person. There's not too many for Jesus present here that he can meet their needs. Jesus speaks with authority, and so people are gathering to hear him. And whether or not they submit to his teaching or not, at that particular time, they sense that it is a different teaching, and they want to hear more. And he heals with authority, and the people had real needs that Jesus was meeting, real oppression that Jesus was delivering them from. The size of the crowds confirm that Jesus' message is a powerful message. It's a message that people needed to hear. It's a message that they wanted to hear. And is this not what you would expect from the Son of God, from Emmanuel, as he comes and makes his dwelling with mankind? In case you're wondering this morning, uh, were the crowds just from Jerusalem as they were? Were they uh, with John? Were they just from Jer Jerusalem and Judea? Mark makes that clear, that not only were many people present, but many places were represented. Look at verse 7. It says, from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of, of the Messiah, his message reaches to Jerusalem and Judea. And his influence then begins to decrease as Jesus' increases. And Jesus, his ministry expands past Jerusalem and Judea out into Galilee. We've already seen that taking place. As he spends most of his time there initially in, in, uh, in Galilee, in that area particularly making his, his residence there in Capernaum. But then his message and his ministry even expands to, uh, to the west beyond Jordan, to the Decapolis. And then it ends up going also to, to the land of Edom. It also then begins to go even north, which Edom is south, and it begins to go north even, to the land of Tyre and Sidon. And so news was traveling fast, his, his kingdom, though it's not geographical in nature, was expanding geographically. 
was expanding to people of, of all nations, tribes, and tongues, it seems as though. And, and it also seems that, that this message, this record here, that uh, the, the, the geographical places and cities that, that Jesus' message was going to and that people were coming from, it seems as though it's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read that for you this morning. Uh, this, this passage is, is deeply concerned with bringing justice to, to not just Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And so let me read this for you in verse, uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. It says, Behold, my servant, the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not clench. He, or quench. he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And this prophecy concerning the Messiah claims that when he comes, he will bring comfort. He, he will bring justice. He'll bring healing, not just to the Jews, but to the world. Particularly here, it says at the end, that he'll bring it to the people of the coastlands. From the Jewish perspective, the, the coastlands or, or port cities, they, they were the gateway to the known world. To, uh, to, the, to the left, if you're looking at the map, or to the to the west of Jerusalem and of Judea and of the promised land is, is this great sea. And that sea that, that, that uh, many cities in, on the coastland were, were bordering and, and, and porting there would, get, would have the access to the rest of the known world. Ultimately to, to Rome, to Greece, to, to the, north, the northern ends of Africa. And even around this, to the to the west and southern portions of Africa, this was the way that that sailing. These were these were the, the the routes that that ships would take, and so it's no accident that that Mark records Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because they are coastland cities, uh, right there to the north of Judea. And while Mark's Roman audience, they, they wouldn't truly understand or even recognize that this was a prophecy fulfilled. We do. So as we look at this, we see that, that Jesus' message reached Tyre and Sidon, and even his visits there, and, and then these followers coming to him, was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. And Mark records that for our benefit, and so that we can see it under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course. And so in this midterm, we see Jesus checking off all the boxes. He, he's, a, he's confirming that he indeed is the Son of God, that he indeed is the Messiah, so we can check off this morning. Message reached the coastland cities. Check. It's done. What's more, to, to Mark's Roman audience, this, this fact that, that Jesus' message reached into Tyre and Sidon and that they would begin to follow Jesus, many of them. By the way, very few Jews living in that area, in Tyre and Sidon, these Phoenician cities. That would give the Roman audience, what? The courage to believe that Jesus' message was not just for the Jew, but that it was for them as well. It was for the Romans as well. You see, Jesus did not only come to bring salvation to the Jew, but also to the Gentile, to the white, to the black, to the red, to the yellow, and all the other colors as the song reminds us. They're all precious in his sight. And so the vast representation of, of Jesus' crowd there from all over the known world 
What was it serving to prove? Well, it was serving to prove that Jesus' message is, in fact, for all people. It is for all people. And so it is powerful. And that's consistent with what we would expect from the Son of God. It's for all people. And that's what we would expect from the Son of God. Crowds gathering from all over the known world are confirming for, a, for us just what we would expect to see in the Son of God. But there's more. Not only would, it, we, would we expect to see the great crowds, and not only would we expect to see all people gathering around Jesus, but we would also expect to see opposition. And so our third and final uh, observation this morning is that many pressures were realized. Many pressures were realized. Look back at verse number 7. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. I shouldn't assume that this verse stands alone uh, without connection to the previous verses. Remember, we, we talked about that a moment ago. So there's definitely a connection here. It connects with verse number 6. Matthew tells us that, that, that Jesus left. Why? Why did he go out to the sea? Why did he withdraw? Well, he did that because he knew the plot of the religious elite. He, he knew that they hated him, that they had begun to conspire, not just wanting to kill him, but now they were actually making plans. In order to avoid the, the trap being sprung too early, what does Jesus do? Well, he withdraws from their presence. Now, was Jesus running in fear? Not necessarily. No, not at all, actually. He, uh, as a master chess player, an infinite amount of moves ahead of his opponent, what is he doing? He, he knows what they have in their hearts, and so he, he makes his way to the sea. There's another reason why he withdrew, not just because more the crowds could, could, uh, be, could better be served there by the sea, but also because he was avoiding contact with the Pharisees at this particular point. Jesus told us that this would happen, that he would be hated. He told us that his disciples would be hated. Even the Old Testament, the, the prophets, they foretold that he would be rejected. And history now confirms for us that Jesus' own people rejected him. He was receiving intense opposition. And so there's this pressure that we see from those who would reject him. And we'll, well, this won't be the end of it. We'll see more of it as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. There wasn't just this pressure from the religious elite. There, there was also the pressure of the, from the practical side of ministry to large groups of people. It's interesting here that Mark records Jesus telling his disciples to go secure a boat. In the synoptic gospels, the gospels that kind of follow the same flow and talk about the same similar things, uh, the other gospel writers don't talk about Jesus needing a boat. Or Jesus telling his disciples to go get a boat. But Mark, for our benefit, does. Verse 9, it says, He told his disciples, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed in around him to touch him. It's interesting to think about this. You, do you think you realize that Jesus was never caught unprepared? I know many of us, we want to be prepared. When, no matter what the occasion is, if we're going into work, we want to be prepared. We want to have all the things that we need. And, and maybe you get there a little bit early and you organize your desk and you make sure that you've got all your supplies. And maybe you're even there so early that in the, in the event that you forgot something, you could still make way to go get those things so you'll be ready on time and prepared. Maybe you're like that for when you go on vacation. You have to have everything. Either way, maybe you're the other way. Maybe, you, maybe you're totally unprepared for so many things, and maybe you even enjoy that because it's part of the adventure. Do you realize that that was never the case for Jesus? Everywhere he went, he was prepared. He was prepared because he either prepared it beforehand or he created it instantly in the moment. 
So Jesus could never truly be unprepared. If he needed a boat, he made sure his disciples went and got a boat. If he needed food, but he didn't already prepare the food, what did he do? He instantly created food for those who needed it. So Jesus never unprepared. We see that here. In the face of, of, of all of these pressures that come from the practical side of ministry, he was never unprepared. Everything he ever needed, he had. And he knew he would need it. He either prepared for it in advance or he, he, he created it in the moment. This is, this is the Son of God. This is consistent with what we would expect. In opposition, he reads their minds. He knows what, where their hearts are. He knows that they're taking counsel, and so he withdraws to the sea. He knows he'll be pressed against the sea, sure, into the, into the water and, 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 and that extreme pressure. He says, hey, I'd like, I'd like to have a boat. And so he has that prepared. No matter what he faces, he is prepared, never caught unprepared. Related to this point and found in this passage again is, is the desire that the demons had to speak up and vouch for Jesus' identity. Verse number 11, it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and, and they cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus doesn't want or need the testimony of the disciples, and so he tells, or of the demons rather, and so he tells them, "You need to be quiet." He, he orders them not to make him known. Well, you might say, "Well, the, the, the demons—they were trying to to help Jesus, right? They're calling out his his identity, but they were doing it in an undermining way." Let me let me tell you what's happening. It looks like they're trying to confirm Jesus' identity, but really what they're doing is they're, they're kind of trying to undermine it. And in a similar way, the firefighters, they'll pre-burn a forest fire or a forest in, in order to prevent or stop the, the forest fire from going any farther. And so if the, if the fire's coming this way, it's heading east, well, what, what are the firefighters? Well, they lend and they go in ahead of it. And oftentimes what they'll do is they'll try to create a stopgap. And they'll do that by control burns. Uh, so that when that fire comes to that point, there won't be any uh, resources to, to, to add to this blaze. And so it'll, in effect, it will die out right there. And so what are they trying to do? They're trying to stop Jesus. They're trying to go ahead of him and, and raise a portion of what lies ahead in order to, 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 to stop it. You might think, well, that's in the best interest of the fire to add to fire. Not if you remove some of those dominoes. And so as that, that momentum comes forward and, and one hits the other and one hits the other, if you can go ahead and you can remove that, those dominoes that are ahead, the, the momentum will stop. And that's really what they're trying to do here. Jesus doesn't need the testimony of a demon. Why? Because they're demons. His own testimony, is, it serves enough. The testimony of his, of his prophecies being fulfilled, of, of his authority over the disciples and over the, over the religious rulers and over disease and, and over nature itself. They all are confirming for us what we need to know. We don't need the testimony of these wicked creatures. And so the scribes, the Pharisees soon will see his own family, Jesus' own personal family, the demons, the local authorities, they're all coming out against Jesus. And what is that activity against Jesus? What does it confirm for us as it climaxes that Jesus's power is no is, is far beyond the match to the, its power, to, 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 the, to the powers of evil, to all that would oppose him. Powerful people wanting to kill you, huge crowds like paparazzis chasing you and you can never get away ultimately, uh, seemingly. Demons calling you out wherever you go. That in itself is kind of freaky, right? Just you say, well, it's, it's Jesus, right? But either way, 
all of these things combined, it sounds like a literal nightmare. It sounds like the stuff of, of just evil nightmares. But it all goes to show that Jesus' message will what? Not be overcome. Jesus' message will not be overcome. He handles all of these situations, all of these pressures with an intense authority. This is exactly, again, what we would imagine would happen when the Son of God comes down to earth and faces the pressures. He would handle it. And he doesn't just handle it. He does more than that. He's more than just an overcomer, just as we are. The power and strength seen in Jesus is, is also seen in the life of a Christian, if in fact you are a Christian. We overcome all opposition as well. Look throughout history how Christ's power in and among his people has led us to not just overcome, but to be more than overcomers, more than conquerors. The same power we see in Christ, we see in the life of the church, and we desire to see in the life of the individuals that make up the church. The strength that overcome all opposition that we face on, on account of following Jesus can, and dare I say, will lead to our overcoming. So Mark shows Jesus geographically heading to the cross. Why is he heading to the cross? Why does he demonstrate this heading to the cross? Beginning in Galilee and the, the surrounding area and then the pathway to Jerusalem. And then that final time of the week of the Passion spent there in Jerusalem. Why does he demonstrate that? Why? Because it climaxes there in Jerusalem. It, the will of the Father meets, it comes to fruition in, life, in the life of Jesus there in Jerusalem. What does that demonstrate for us? You cannot follow your heavenly Father's will and the world's at the same time. The opposition came against Jesus to stop him from following the Father's will. And what does Jesus do? He overcomes. And he demonstrates for us that we cannot follow the will of the Father and the will of the world. It's been likened to swimming upstream will of the Father is that we swim upstream, and the will of the world is that we swim downstream. And as we try to make it, so many things will try to pull us down. They'll try to lead us back down the river. The current itself, the debris in the current, the other creatures that are swimming downstream along with that, they all serve to stop us, to hold us back. And you see in the life of Jesus that you can't be overcome. So in that hope and with that power, we walk away from this story recognizing that Jesus lives in us and that we also are overcomers and that we also can fulfill the, the will of the Father because Jesus, in fact, lives in us. Maybe you wonder this morning whether you can actually follow, uh, follow the Father's will in your life. Mark did. He wondered himself. The, this gospel author, do you, do you think, do you remember? He became unprofitable. He was on a missionary journey and he, he turned tail and went back for whatever reason. He left. And Paul says of him, he's, he's not worth anything as it relates to the ministry. He can't overcome. And yet we see at the end of Mark's life, what do we see? Well, Paul says he is profitable. And even now we profit because of this man who what? In the end he overcame. Why? Because the same power that was in Jesus that overcame the, the, the opposition of the people and of the family and the demons and this world itself it's the same power that lived in Mark. 
So realize this, Christian, that God is changing you. He is empowering you through, through the person of Christ. He is strengthening you. To the Roman Christians living in the first century, they needed to see the courage and strength of Jesus in the face of opposition. They needed to know that. They needed to, to sense it. And our friend Mark, he gave it to them. He, he demonstrated it for them and he demonstrates this for us too because so do we. We need to know that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. All of these things that we see in this text, in this midterm, if you will, they confirm for us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And maybe here this morning you're, you're, you're saying, I'm tired of hearing this same drum beat going on and on and on and Mark just continues to hammer for us what we've already heard. Maybe the reason why it continues to be repetitive in your ears is because you need to hear that. You need to know that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Lord of all. And that he, His power is displayed in His message. And the fact that all of these people are gathering around him says that he's not turning them away and that this message is not for Jews alone, but for all mankind. And you need to know that his message as the Son of God will not be overcome. And that same power that lives in Jesus is also in his church. Are you struggling with any of those thoughts? Are you struggling to realize in your own life and to believe these things to be true? Do you question Jesus' sovereignty? Do you quarantine him and, and, and rope him off from areas of your life and say, Jesus, you'll be Lord of these areas, but not these areas? You don't want me because of these areas, or I don't want you in these areas? Are you truly looking to Jesus as the Son of God? Perhaps you're attempting to apply Jesus' message as a new patch in an old shirt, as we looked at the past few weeks, with, particularly with Pastor Tim's text there in chapter 2. Perhaps you're, you're, you're not willing to submit to him fully as the Son of God, and, and because of that, you're, you'll only receive part of his message. You're trying to patch Jesus' gospel into the American dream, or do your low self-esteem, or do your already full agenda. Is Jesus another trinket on your shelf? He doesn't work that way. He's the Son of God. He's Lord of all. He overcomes all. These facts that we've looked at this morning that many people were present, that many places were represented, and that many pressures were realized, they all serve to confirm for us Mark's main point. John makes that same point in his gospel. He makes it explicitly clear. Matter of fact, where Mark buries it a little bit and leads us to it, John comes right out of the gate and says that the point of his gospel is that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. And Mark ultimately wants us to see that as well. He begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, by saying Jesus is the Son of God. And it's interesting. There's only one person, one person in the gospel of Mark. Now, aside from demons, there's only one person in the gospel of Mark that makes the statement that explicitly that Jesus is the Son of God. Why does Mark record it in this way? Well, the only person to say that in John, or I'm sorry, in Mark's account is a Roman centurion who calls out and says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. A Roman says this. A Roman. Here we're studying the Gospel of Mark, and it was written to Roman. Christians, Jesus is 
the Son of God. And Mark wants us to know that. And so we have the midterm this morning. And it all points to this fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Hagerstown Church, you need to know that. And Hagerstown needs to know that. And because of that, you are sent.